Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. This is Alan Daniels. I'm the Director of Scientific Affairs for the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, and I will be interviewing Dr. Joe Calabrese, who is the Director of Mood Disorders in Cleveland, Ohio, He treats patients and studies bipolar and unipolar depression and is a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. Good afternoon and and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Calabrese. Hi, Alan. I'm glad to be involved here. Great. Thank you. This afternoon we'll be talking about uh, mood disorders and in specific unipolar and bipolar depression. And to begin with, can you tell, tell us a little bit about how common mood disorders are and what kinds of effects do they have on people's lives? Mood disorders are, are quite common, Alan, and I, I think it's fair to say that a major depression is, is kind of the common cold of uh, mental disorders. And and about 20 to 25% of people will experience a mood disorder throughout their life. Of course, the most the common type of mood disorder is mood disorders that are recurrent. They come and they go. So it's a big problem in our society and across cultures around the world. Are there different kinds of depression? Yeah, you know, there's uh, there's two ways of looking at depression. One is, do depressions come and go? Are they recurrent? And the other is, if they're recurrent, do they alternate? to other mood states. So you can have recurrent major depression or you can have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what bipolar disorder is and how it's different from depression? Well, you know, in bipolar disorder, people have depressions, and although sometimes the literature would say that the depressions are slightly different, I would say that you know, they're not significantly different with one big exception. For folks who have recurrent major depression, depressions just come and go. And then in between the depressions, they go back to whatever their baseline is. But for folks who have bipolar disorder, the depressions come and go, but they alternate with mood swings. Mood swings are just periods of time where people have either elevated mood or expansive mood or irritable mood. And these are typically called periods of hypomania, or if they're really bad, they're called manic episodes. Can you tell us some more about mania and what the difference is in the different mania states? This is a really good question because if a mood swing is severe, it's called mania or manic episode. Mm -hmm. And if the mood swing is mild or moderately severe, it's called hypomania or mild mania. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's important because if somebody's had a manic episode, they're automatically type 1. Type 1 is the type in which the manic episodes have been severe in the past. And type 2 is the type in which you've never had a manic episode. You've only had these hypomanic episodes. And the reason why this distinction is important is that for folks who have type 2, you know, the, the mild highs, 
the, 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 the primary problem is clearly depression. Whereas sometimes with the manic episode, they can be a pretty severe problem. So manic episodes are periods of time where people will have elevated mood or they'll have an irritable mood or an expansive mood, and it's a big problem. Now, lots of times people are not quite sure what expansive means, but expansive mood means thinking big, having lots of ideas. You have all kinds of ideas. That's the expansive mood. So during hypomania, you know, people will have elevated mood and irritable mood, and sometimes they'll get expansive, but it's not a huge problem. And sometimes people would actually say these mild highs, these hypomanias, are really the idealized norm. It's like where everyone would like to be all the time, a little bit on the high side. There's one problem with that. The problem is you can't have a high without cycling into a depression. Of course, that's really disappointing to people because, you know, the highs can be pretty good. Sure. I can tell you with certainty, if you have a high, you are eventually going to cycle into a depression. Mm-hmm. And how does how does that relate to people who will say they've been diagnosed with either a bipolar 1 disorder or a bipolar 2 disorder? Well, you know, if you have depressions that alternate with highs, regardless if they're mild or moderate or severe, the treatment is quite similar. You have to have a mood stabilizer. Mood stabilizers are medicines like lithium or valproate or or many of the atypical antipsychotic agents that are supposed to prevent future episodes of hypomania or mania, and future episodes of depression. So that the main thing is, regardless if it's type 1 or type 2, the medical treatment focuses on a mood stabilizer, medicines that will not just make something go away, but will prevent it from coming back. Very important. And I'd like to talk to you more in just a minute about the treatments for bipolar disorders, but let me ask you first about the diagnosis, and is is bipolar disorder often misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed? What's your experience with that? Well, I, I, my experience is that um, bipolar disorder is very frequently diagnosed. And uh, in my experience, the, the majority of people I see who have really hard-to-treat depressions mm-hmm. and, the, and who, who say they've never had the mood swings, more often than not, have undiagnosed, untreated bipolar disorder. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. what happens is that people almost always recognize the depressions as being a problem. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you have lots of depressions and you get a little high now and then, well, that's rarely viewed as being a problem. In fact, Mm -hmm. people view that as a welcome relief. Right. So that's a a, a problem because, you know, if those highs go missed, you get the wrong treatment. So someone who is who is diagnosed and treated for depression may start feeling better and think that that's a relapse of the depression rather than a manic uh, mood. Yeah, so say you, you um, are in a depression and you get started on an antidepressant, you know, you might get better, but if you cycle into a high, you know you're going to go right back down. Mm-hmm. So it is very common. In fact, the first thing 
I do. When I see someone who's had a depression that's hard to treat, you know, who comes in, mm-hmm. I start looking around for undiagnosed, untreated periods of hypomania or mania. And that changes the treatment completely. You see, the foundation for treatment uh, is different if it's unipolar or bipolar. Mm-hmm. Remarkably different. Can you say some things about the difference between unipolar and bipolar treatment? You, you were talking about that a minute ago. but Sure. You know, um, one thing that's not different between unipolar and bipolar is that people benefit from some sort of uh, treat, uh, psychological treatment or counseling or psychotherapy. I don't care what you call it. Mm-hmm. People need to learn how to manage the symptoms of their illness. Mm-hmm. And they do this through talking therapy, learning mm-hmm. about the illness. You know, I always say medicines make the symptoms go away, whereas counseling helps people learn how to live with the symptoms that are left over. Mm-hmm. All right, so the main thing there is psychotherapy is needed for both unipolar disorder and bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And then the medicines are different. Can you talk a little bit about the medicines, and then I also want to ask you about um, peer support. Okay. So, um, as far as the medications, the, the foundation for treatment, medical treatment, of unipolar disorder is a traditional antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Again, a prescribed on top of some sort of psychological intervention, be it a therapy or counseling or peer intervention or group therapy or support groups. On the other hand, the the foundation for treatment for bipolar disorder isn't a traditional antidepressant. In fact, there's, there's never been a regulatory agency around the world that has approved a traditional antidepressant as the foundation of treatment for bipolar disorder. Instead, the primary treatment for bipolar disorder is a mood stabilizer. So again, what are mood stabilizers? Mood stabilizers are medicines that prevent future episodes of highs and future episodes of depression. So again, in both illnesses, people need a psychosocial intervention. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in unipolar, the medical intervention is a traditional antidepressant plus the counseling or, or the psychosocial intervention. And then in bipolar, it's a mood stabilizer plus the therapy. So if someone were currently being treated for depression, how would they know if they should perhaps be treated for a bipolar disorder? Okay, so here's the thing you do. Focus folks on, uh, focus yourself on what happens when the depression goes away. So one way of talking about this is is, is ask people, when your depression goes away, what happens? Do you go back to baseline or to some kind of other mood state? happen first. So that's the first thing. And then you can start looking for symptoms of being hypomanic or manic mm-hmm. or missed. So the main thing then that distinguishes the mood swings is people feel hyper. They feel activated. They feel revved up. It's not always elevated mood because, you know, lots of times during these mood swings, people will feel irritable. It won't feel pleasant, and you can feel irritable, agitated, restless, Mm -hmm. but you feel hyper. 
So you get agitated. You have an increase in restless energy. You can have a, an increase in sexual energy. So in depression, your physical and sexual energy is down. And then during the mood swings, your physical and sexual energy is increased. In addition, during the mood swings, people will get talkative, friendly, outgoing. They'll be the life of the party. Right. Uh, engaging. And their speech changes. Okay? Mm-hmm. So what happens to speech? People will talk faster and will talk louder. And when speech is louder and faster, that's called pressured speech. And then the thoughts go along with that. So people will think faster. And their thoughts will be going fast, racing. And sometimes, if it's really bad, folks will get racing thoughts so fast that they can't keep up with their own thoughts. That's, that's pretty bad. When you have racing mm-hmm. thoughts where you can't keep up with your own thoughts, then you've got a pretty bad episode of mania. And then a, a big thing that goes along with the mood swings is a change in judgment. You know, people do dumb things during mood swings. And what I mean by that is they just get impulsive. You do things quickly without thinking about the consequences. And it can mm-hmm. be anything. You know, you can stand impulsively, you can drive impulsively. You can say things to people you wouldn't normally do. You can get into impulsive new relationships. You can have impulsive sex. You can get in trouble with the law. Okay. When someone is depressed, can you tell the difference between just depression and bipolar depression? Well, this is a really good question that's controversial. But I tell you something, I'm kind of... Uh, a simple-minded guy, and I think you can't really tell the difference. Now, if you look at the research literature, you'll see there's some fine distinctions between depression and unipolar disorder and depression and bipolar disorder. But from my perspective, there's only one difference, mm-hmm. and that is when you got unipolar depressions, when the depressions go away, you go back to being baseline. Right. But if you got depressions associated with bipolar disorder, you don't necessarily go back to baseline. You can have mood swings with it. So, are, there, are there any kind of tests or tools to help in the diagnostic process to tell whether someone has a depression or a bipolar depression or other kinds of mood disorders? You know, there are uh, self-administered tests or screening tests or rating scales you can do, those are those help. But, you know, I, I find that there's no replacing just learning about the symptoms of it. So the best way to know, you know, if you're in a depression or if you're in a high, is to learn about the illness and have an authoritative command mm-hmm. for the symptoms of each phase. Are there ways that people can track those to... Um go into their doctor's office to talk about symptoms that might be helpful? Yeah, and, you know, that that can be a quite, a, quite a, a, a useful and helpful aid. So what I tell folks is just track your mood on your calendar. So, you know, at the end of a day, in the evening, if you think you've been in the depressed phase that day, just put down D for depression. Mm-hmm. And if you think at the end of the day you've you've been in a mood swing, 
and then put down something for that, M for a mood swing or hypomania, H, or if it's bad, you can put down M, whatever. But the thing is, if you track your mood by day, you know, pretty still you'll, you'll, you'll get a good read on what phase you're in. Mm-hmm. So tracking mood in a calendar is very helpful, very useful. And that would be a way, perhaps, that someone who could come in who's been treated for depression but thinks they might have a bipolar disorder could help to illustrate what those mood swings were for a, a, a re-diagnosis or a change in diagnosis. You know, tracking mood on a calendar is helpful, but I, I find that people are not able to, to to get it right when it comes to the mood swings. So, you know, people will track their mood as being depressed, mm-hmm. but, you know, the highs can be pretty, pretty pleasant. So it's hard for people to get a good read on those highs. Mm-hmm. So, so it takes some doing to, to, to be able to track your highs. But, yes, it's eminently doable. Are there other ways that patients or people can track their, um, their high moods that work? I think life charting is the best way to do it. And the other thing that you can do is, is get the benefit of your family or significant other or your your spouse uh, as well. So, you know, talking about these things are useful. You know, people, you know, frequently will say that spouses tolerate the depressions but don't tolerate the highs so well. Mm-hmm. And that it's just the opposite for folks who got the illness. They tolerate the highs, but not the depressions. Right. Yeah, so if you work together, you can get it right. So part of what you're saying is a, a part of the, the diagnostic process may involve working with your doctor over time to understand whether it is a, a bipolar disorder or whether it's just a, a depression. That's uh, that's part of this, but my last point was a little different, and that was having your family involved or your spouse or significant other involved in the treatment as well. So sometimes the individual is not the best evaluator of their moods. Yeah, and you know something, if you think about it, if you had a heart disease, well, you'd want to have your your significant other involved, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you had cancer, you'd, you'd want to have someone else involved. But for some reason in the healthcare profession, uh, family members or significant others don't seem to be as involved. So you almost have to go out of your way to do this, to get the family involved. But yes, it's very helpful to uh, periodically have meetings that involve a loved one or a significant other or a spouse at the same time. Are there any tips or tools for getting family members or significant others involved in the uh, in the mood tracking? Uh, yeah, here's what I would say. You know, it's, it's a tough sell to pull this off midstream, but it's much easier to get family involved at the time of the initial assessment. So I would say that when folks come in for the initial assessment, the first time somebody sees a mental health professional, mm-hmm. it's quite helpful to have uh, your family member or spouse involved at that time. So, you know, they get a good read on, on, on what's going on. You know, mood disorders are hereditary. It's like mm-hmm. most illnesses. But bipolar disorder is particularly hereditary. Mm-hmm. So when, when, when you go in with a family member, it's not just that you would benefit by having the support of a loved one, but they would benefit. 
Because there might be another family member who has the illness. Or maybe mm-hmm. your spouse has the illness. Or your parents have that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just that you would benefit, but they, they would benefit from it as well. But I, I guess the main point I'm making here is the best way to get family plugged in is to have them involved in the initial assessment. Mm-hmm. And, and in the course of treatment, let me shift to that for just a minute, um, how treatable are these illnesses? You know something? Uh, I believe um, bipolar disorder and unipolar disorder are eminently treatable. So when people ask me that question, they ask that question a lot. Mm-hmm. I tell them this. I'm pretty sure you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. That almost always happens. What I can tell you is how much better you're going to get. And that's true. I mean, I'm pretty sure that almost everyone's going to get better. Exactly how much that we have to see. Mm-hmm. So then people will ask, well, what's better? So this is the tough one. What I mean by better, a good, a good response, a complete response, is that your cycling stops. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's that's the that's what the objective for treatment is. Mm-hmm. No episodes, not just mild to moderate improvement, not just bad episodes become mild episodes. The objective for treatment is the prevention of future episodes. So if somebody asks you, is the treatment working? Did that treatment work? If if you Say yeah, that means that your highs and lows stopped cold. Mm-hmm. They went away. So anything less than that is a, a partial response. It helped, but it didn't do the job. And you're saying that that's accomplished through oftentimes a combination of some medications and also some sort of talking therapy and/or peer support to help manage the illness. Yes, I think um, it's, it's accomplished through a combination of those things. Peer support is helpful because you know, sometimes this is pretty hard for people to accept. And who better to help someone understand and learn about an illness than someone who not only has a sophisticated understanding of the illness, but has a personal uh, understanding of the illness. Mm-hmm. So peer support is helpful in that regard. But also, but but in combination with mood stabilizers and um, psychotherapy. Now keep in mind that you know it's rare to find one mood stabilizer that does the job by itself. So not infrequently, people need one or two or, or several mood stabilizers in combination. So you know you might be thinking right now, well, geez, all this treatment a mood stabilizer and then counseling and the peer support and isn't that kind of excessive? Well, no. I mean, if you think about in medicine, other illnesses, combinations of treatments are always the case. So say if you got diabetes, mm-hmm. you, you, you not only need a medicine for the diabetes, oh, you also need to manage your diet. Mm-hmm. You also need to manage an exercise program. And then you need to learn about the diabetes by talking to people who have it. So I don't think there's anything unusual about what we do in the treatment of mood disorders compared to other fields of medicine. Mm -hmm. Multiple things are needed by people, and they're needed in combination. 
And do those sometimes change over the longer-term course of the illness? Yeah, you know, uh, I think up front, people need the full-court press more often than not. And what I mean by that is, is it's not just uh, medicines and and counseling and and, and support, uh, but you know, down the road a piece, you, you don't need all those things. Sometimes um, people will, uh, although they need to continue the medicine, they might not need as frequent medication checks. In fact, you know what I find is that. Once the medicines kick in is when people really need and benefit from the, the counseling and the peer support. Mm-hmm. Do, do they do they need to change medicine sometimes because they stop working? Sometimes. Sometimes. Medicines will work and then they'll peter out or they, they'll lose the response. And that's important because you don't want to let this illness get out of hand. You know, it's like mm-hmm. any other illness. You let a little bit of it out. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get a mind of its own. So, you know, you really want to make sure that the cycling, if at all possible, is completely gone. And and the way to do that is to be aggressive about medication management as well as these other things. And tracking moods over the long run then can be a helpful thing even when they've stabilized. Yeah, you know, the, the nice thing about uh, life charting or tracking mood is that as you do it, down the road a piece, you'll find that you'll, you'll be picking up on mild mood swings or minor mood swings. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it improves your insight. And you got to worry about those little mood swings. Mm-hmm. Because it's like any other illness. If you ignore the little ones, pretty soon little mood swings become moderately big mood swings. Mm-hmm. And then the moderate ones become big ones. So tracking mood is very helpful because it improves it. It improves your illness awareness. You pick up the mild mood swings. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your research and are there things you found that would inform the discussion we're having today from your research? Well, uh, I'll, I'll say two general things. You know, one thing is that it's important to have families involved in, in research. It's not just the care and study of people with the illness. But, you know, they live in a family unit that needs to also have care and study. Correct. And then the other thing is to have zero tolerance for residual leftover symptoms. And that's important. It's like, you know, alcohol and drug use. You've got to have zero tolerance. And you've got to say that about the, uh, the, uh, the same when it comes to leftover symptoms, because if you have a little leftover symptom, that illness is going to grow back if you don't watch it. In general, though, to answer your question, Alan, our our treatment here at the Mood Disorders Program is very uh, clinically oriented. We're uh, invested in developing treatments, both medical and psychological or psychosocial, that improve the illness that prevent future episodes. And we're very invested in real-world presentations of bipolar disorder. So let me give you an example. So we recently did a study in a, in a county jail, and, and what we found out is that 
the, the most common illness in the county jail, if you were male, was bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. It was bipolar disorder type 1. And the, the, the people in jail uh, who had bipolar disorder, 70% of them had never been diagnosed. And the, 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 the kicker here is that we compared the number of times they were in jail compared to those who had no uh, mood disorder or no mental illness. Yes. And so folks who had bipolar disorder had been in jail, had been incarcerated four more times, 400% increase. Mm. So that's what I mean. That's a real-world yeah. study. You know, you just can't put people in a placebo-controlled trial and, and improve the care of folks. Right. So untreated bipolar disorder can lead to other kinds of social problems. Yeah, and at the top of the list, if you're male and if you're abusing alcohol or drugs, is legal complications. Mm-hmm. So you got to, you know, so you, if you have bipolar disorder, you, you have to study real-world presentations. You know, most studies, for example, will exclude folks who've had problems with alcohol or drugs. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes, that makes a lot really, of sense. Yeah, these these are really tough studies to do because they're you know real world presentations of illness have uh, lots of problems that you got to worry about. Anyway, that's that's the kind of type of study we like to do the most. Mm-hmm. For this podcast this afternoon, is there anything else you would like to add before we conclude this session? Well. The only other thing I would add is a a little something about suicide. You know, uh, having thoughts about wanting to kill yourself is a symptom of depression. Mm -hmm. And this is just like if someone had pneumonia, you'd be having fever and chills and sweats with pneumonia, right? Mm -hmm. But in depression, if it's bad, you know, people get to feeling hopeless and helpless and they think about suicide. So the you know, the way to think about this is that having thoughts about suicide is a symptom of depression. And when the depression goes away, these thoughts almost always go away. Yeah. So this is an important thing for people to understand. It's, it's not a problem with personality. It's not a weakness. Right. Uh, these thoughts are, are a symptom of the disorder. Yes, absolutely. Good. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Calbreeze, for your time this afternoon. We appreciate this, and on behalf of DBSA, we'd like to thank you. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help. 